Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. The Ringer's YouTube channel is nearing 100,000 subscribers, so make sure you check us out on youtube.com slash the ringer to keep up with the latest NBA desktop with Jason Concepcion, Slow Newsday with Kevin Clark, and tons of Ringer original videos like Hallelujah or Kobe Come Back. Also, be sure to check out all of our NBA trade deadline coverage. Kevin O'Connor wrote about the ongoing pursuit of Anthony Davis. Dan Devine wrote about the five biggest questions after the trade deadline. And Bill Simmons and Ryan Russillo recorded a live trade deadline reaction podcast, which you can watch on youtube.com slash the ringer or listen to on Apple and Spotify. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and I have no Andy Greenwald today. But that's okay because I was joined by some really great guests today. First, we have Allison Herman and Andrew Godadaro who joined me to conduct a little TV experiment. So basically, I was thinking about what Andy and I were saying last week about the landscape of television, the 385% increase since 2014 in scripted TV, and... It made me a little bit nostalgic for the era of when you would go home, you'd kind of maybe grab a slice on the way home, maybe you'd get a little dinner, sit down on the couch, 8 p.m., turn on your TV, and then you'd watch TV until like 11.30 or 12, and then you would go to bed. Now, that might be an extreme version for some people. Maybe you watch just an hour of television or 90 minutes of television a night, but there was a world in which the major networks we're trying to program nights to get you to do that, to do the 8 p.m. to 11 p.m., 11.30 p.m., even 12 a.m. night in front of the TV. So I wanted to try that with Allison and Andrew. Can you program a night of TV from all of the streaming networks, from the, the broadcast networks, from the pay cable networks, the premium cable networks, that goes from 8 p.m. to however late you want to go into late night of shows that have started premiered since December 1st. So we're going to do December 1st to now. We'll do this again in a couple of months. And I think it's like a really good way of kind of cataloging what's on TV at any given point, but also what kind of shows people actually want to watch on any given night. So we're going to do that with Alice and Andrew. And after that, it was my pleasure to welcome Leslie Hedlund, who is one of the showrunners on Russian Doll, a show that Andy and I uh, adore and we've talked about before. And Leslie also directed a bunch of the episodes. She was a fantastic hang. So she called in from New York and we talked about Russian Doll and the amazing reception that show, that Netflix show has gotten. So we'll get to Leslie after Andrew and Allison. Let's get into the show. All right, guys. So I am joined by Allison Herman. Hello. And a little bit, we're going to be joined by Andrew Godadaro. And I wanted to do a little bit of an experiment. Andy and I just talked last week about like the streaming wars and the 385% jump in scripted content that we've experienced since 2014, which is kind of like, I can't even wrap my head around it, but it's really interesting to think about it in the context of you, Allison, because that you essentially come in on that wave. Like, you are becoming, like, a professional critic during this time period of incredible uh, increased production, like, almost in industrial revolution production within TV. I mean, that number literally sent a chill down my spine. Right. And that's, like, but as a critic, you don't necessarily know differently. But obviously, as a TV watcher, you remember the days when it was, you know, at least basic cable or premium cable along with the networks, uh, if not only networks back in the 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 early 80s or whatever, what like when I was first starting watching television. But what I wanted to do was try to think about TV now the way we used to think about television, which was essentially taking shows, any show that's on now, whether it was streaming, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's something you watch on Instagram regularly, uh, or whether it's on CBS, and breaking it down into a one-night, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. primetime block, and then a late-night a late night block after that. Yeah, I run all of television. It's all my network. Yes, you have I'm, one night to make your must-see TV. Yeah, so this got me thinking, as it is clearly designed to do, and mostly got me thinking in the context of something that you guys talk about a lot on this podcast and I write about a lot, is how there's no such thing as monoculture mm -hmm. or programming for everyone anymore. Like, theoretically, I could have gone into this and thought about, like, you know, I want a little bit of this and a little bit of that so I can get this demographic and that demographic. But in my, you know, monarchy of one, I just decided I was going to put together all these shows that I am genuinely excited about watching. Like, yes. not even in a professional context. When I am completely left to my own devices, I have no deadlines. What do, am I 
actively looking forward to just like putting on. Right. It's an, a somewhat antiquated version of watching TV, but rather than, you know, you get home, make yourself some dinner, and then you watch three or four Riverdales, you know, it's like, and that's, and that's sort of what- Which is, ha- full disclosure, something I do on a regular basis. <laughs> sure. It's like, and I do that with old Bourdain episodes. I do that with, uh, my wife and I will just like watch a couple of modern families, you know, like there's lots of stuff where it's like, because of streaming libraries, because of- the lack of temporality, I think, that television kind of has now. There is no such thing as seasons anymore when you break it down that way. And there's no such thing as, like, artful juxtaposition, which yes. I think was something that I tried to take into account And here. that's what I wanted to get at. So the the inspiration for this project, this experiment, and the reason why I'm going to put parameters around it, I'm going to say we're talking about shows that have premiered since December 1st, 2018 to right now, which is February, what is it, the 11th? I think so. February 11th, 2019. Time isn't real. It's fine. (laughs) And so I wanted to give it that time period because otherwise, as we noticed when we were walking out to do this podcast and we stopped by Amanda Dobbins' office and Amanda's like, so can I just do the crown in mine? And I want to do this more than once per year. Like I want to do this a few times this year so that we can kind of use this as a filter through which to talk about what's on TV quote unquote now. Now the inspiration for this obviously is the uh, famous must-see TV block that was NBC's block. And that kind of, at least for me, shaped my idea of what a TV night is supposed to be, right? So this was largely anchored by uh, Cosby in the 80s and then Friends kind of in the late 90s. And during the Friends period, it was Friends and then another sitcom, whether it was like Just Just Shoot Me or Suddenly Susan, uh, Seinfeld, another comedy, Veronica's Closet, a bunch of other stuff, and then ER. Yeah, so I was, think for me, the platonic ideal was like that one season where it was like community, 30 Rock, Parks and Rec, yes. and like I forget the fourth, but yeah. yes, and I they've know tried, exactly. we've tried do They've tried doing stuff um, around Shonda Nights on ABC. I think there was a couple of things around TGIT. Lost. Yeah, right. Lost had a kind of pretty strong block for a while on ABC. But for the most part, outside of HBO's Sunday Nights... We don't really have this. And HBO is really the closest thing we do have where it's typically Thrones and then two, two other comedies. shows with with two comedies with Thrones. And that that's hella fun, you know, like when that's happening because you can kind of decompress from Thrones with stuff. But I wanted to try and recreate that. So we're talking shows from December to now. And um, I guess why don't we uh, just give me your block and then feel free to tell me why here, where, whatever— Okay, I think I'm just going to try to walk you through it from the beginning. Right. (laughs) So, I am not a person, as you know, who regularly keeps up with or watches sports. (laughs) That is a void in my life. Okay. And that void has been filled by my first entry, which is like a full hour and a half of my programming block. It is the show that I think I genuinely feel the most affection and passion for. It is one of the only shows that I watch in a communal setting, which definitely contributes to that. It's RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so RuPaul's Drag Race is 90 minutes long? Oh, yeah. They're doing the whole, like, VH1 is really milking it. It's a huge moneymaker. They're doing, like, the Bachelor thing. Okay. Like, it's relatively cheap. It does really well for them, and so they stretch it out. And especially right now, they're in an all-star cycle, you know, which I can share my opinions (laughs) about that in in a separate forum. But, yeah, it's truly an incredibly made work of television. Okay, and that actually probably would be fun because you've got, like, probably you can watch along on Twitter as well and see people commenting on the competition. Okay. Exactly, and it is both funny and dramatic and tense, and there's an incredible amount of skill involved, and it's just, like, over— it has literally been on as of this month for a decade, and they have just turned it into— a machine. Okay. It is so well done at this point. So from 8 to 9.30, we've got RuPaul's Drag Race yeah. on Allison TV. Yes. So you are, in this hypothetical scenario, you are in a bar, and then at 9.31, you are teleported onto your couch. Okay. And then my sort of attempt at catering to monoculture slash basically the only even vaguely like heavier dramatic selection from my lineup, which I also think is very telling, is Russian Doll. Okay. Which you've talked about. It yeah. is just an incredible show. It is both— Russian so Doll sp- is on my slate as well. Yeah. Yes. I think that's—if I had to guess, that's probably the only thing that's going to be on all three. Okay. And— is the only thing that's really approached, probably not even probably, definitely because it's on Netflix. It's just like the one thing so far this year that I see everyone talking about. Right. Which is actually something that I wish applied to my next 
element of the block. Okay, so where, it's nine. So it's ten o'clock yes, now. It's okay. Ten o'clock, and I tried to go for a pretty old school piece of not counter programming, but like a complementary block where there's like a handoff and unity between the two halves of it. Yeah. The first half is the final season of Broad City, which okay. I think is being also done. on my list. Yeah. Yes, which is being done. I think incredibly well. They are balancing. I think both the humor and specificity of observation that's defined the series, but they're also very aware of the amount of emotional investment a lot of people have, mm-hmm. and they're not being, you know, treacly or tacky about it, but they are putting in, I think, a lot of effort to show that these characters have grown and they're saying their goodbyes. They, they started she-work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was really disappointed that that wasn't, like, an overt wing parody, yeah. <laughs> but the the WeWork shots were were worth it, I thought. And um, Comedy Central, actually, I, I just transplanted this intact. They're juxtaposing the final season of this beloved institution of a show, which is a callback to, you know, back in 2013 when we actually used to watch things together. Sure, yeah. To a show that I really wish were getting more attention, so I'm just gratuitously going to plug in right now, which is the other two, which is by Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, who are former co-head writers of SNL. Yeah. Chris Kelly, like, used to be a writer on Broad City, so there is a very shared sensibility. And Paul Downs and Lucia Agnello, who are two of the primary creative voices in that show, are also in the writer's room of the other two. It is a show about uh, two young people, two siblings in New York who were kind of late 20s, early 30s, and their much younger, like, 14-year-old brother suddenly becomes, like, a giant musically-slash-YouTube tween pop star. Yes. And the show, I really love it because it basically zigs where you think it's going to zag. Like, when you when you think, like, 14-year-old musically star, you're definitely <laughs> picturing, like, a monster. Sure. And they very deliberately make him— like a, a kid. He's a sweet, vulnerable, you know, prone to getting caught up in the excesses. But, like, they are—they love him and they want to protect him as opposed to being, like, who is this creature that we suddenly have to babysit? And also, like, Molly Shannon is in it. And she plays, like, the momager. But instead of being Dina Lohan, she's also got her own stuff. And it's just both incredibly funny and, like, joke-centric in a way that not a lot of TV is right now. But yeah. also— is serialized and, like, builds to some really good payoffs. And I was so impressed by it because I watched it all in one sitting. I think it's been a little ignored because it's almost hurt by, like, how well it targets younger people. It is very literate in, like, how people who are aware of the Internet, like, talk to each other. But it's also airing on linear television, which means that 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 entire audience doesn't engage with that style of content anymore. Would you say that— See, what's kind of interesting about sitcoms right now, if you want to just like broadly call that a sitcom, is that they were, I think, really helped by exactly what we're doing here. Like it was more easy, it was easier to sort of sit down and watch a sitcom in a block of two hours of sitcoms rather than DVRing one episode of Parks and Rec or whatever and then be like, okay, that was 22 minutes and it was pretty good and and now I'm going to go off and do something else. NBC, to their credit, has kind of like rebuilt that from like the (laughs) demolished ashes of the early 10s, but now they have, they have Good Place, they have Superstore, and actually my next block is an NBC sitcom because once I got in the rhythm, I was like, oh yeah, like when I'm watching a bunch of like 20 minute super fast episodes, like what I want is to just go to another snackable thing. Yes. So I actually put what I, what my vote for the best executed of that lineup is Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which feels like one of those shows. We have a lot of overlap. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of overlap. I'm so shocked because like I assumed that everyone would kind of have their private Idaho. Because you thought I would just have True Detective in slow motion (laughs) three hours (laughs) (laughs) every timeline gets its own hour yeah right yeah so that show was on Fox for the first five seasons was canceled but it's made by NBC Studios so they just brought it on board and it feels immediately at home okay so yeah that's that that segues I'm gonna we can do late night next so let's I'll just run through my prime time block then so mine starts with what you were talking about with Brooklyn Nine-Nine it seems like a classic 8pm Thursday night show in another world I paired that with um, Black Monday, which I was going to nice. do Broad City, but I had a feeling you might. So just for just to mix it well, up, what would give you that impression <laughs> that I might pick Broad City? Um, I, I I figured uh, Black Monday is kind of like 
where Brooklyn Nine-Nine is like super affirmative and everything is basically okay. And the people on the show essentially care about each other very deeply. Black Monday is kind of the inverted version of that. Where there's just like a lot of cocaine and a lot of like really, really like elaborate dressing downs of people going on. And it works, I think, as a comedy, an, like an 830 type comedy rather than any kind of prestige TV thing. Like, I think it ultimately, and we've talked about this before with Black Monday, and this, if you don't know, is the Don Cheadle show on Showtime, uh, also starring Paul Shear and Andrew Rannells and Regina King. And it's about uh, the the first the Wall Street crash in 1986. I do love that in this alternate universe, we're in a world where Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Black Monday would be on the same network. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this, yeah. like, clouds of cocaine show with this, like, happy work family show. Yeah, and then, so, for 9 o'clock, I thought I would, I, I picked Russian Doll as well. Uh, I think it's good to have a puzzle box show. And I paired it with something a little bit more, uh, I think, specifically to my tastes, which was uh, Friends from College. So, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, I, it generation and uh, I have a predilection for friends from college. I also like the fact that it bridges comedy with like a soapier aspect so that it feels a little bit more like I'm like waiting out of sitcoms and into drama over the course of the night, which I, for some reason as a kid, feel like that's what Night Court was on Thursday night. So like, even though Cheers also had some darker moments, but I felt like Night Court was like, it's happening late at night and it's 9.30 right before LA Law. You know, and so like that would be kind of like getting me ready for the drama. Interesting. I have a question about Friends from College. Sure. I'm just going to come right and ask it. Yes. Did it get better in season two? <laughs> um, well, it got... Uh, I, I just really enjoy the performers on it. I, I like Fred Savage is very funny on it. Billy Eichner is really funny on it. Uh, like any ensemble, there's going to be parts where you're like, I don't really want to watch this particular subplot. It's hard to explain. Like, it's not just like shared plate jokes. Like, it, it does actually have like a little bit of a real like kind of way of looking at turning 40, but still kind of hanging on to being in your younger, more virile years in a, in a, in a good way. I, I, I personally really enjoy the show, but I understand. I wouldn't say it's like an example of like perfect television. I just remember if we're sticking with like the comedy drama framework, I remember watching it, watching the first season and I did not give it the kindest review, but in part because it felt like it was, it didn't know whether it wanted to be sitcom-y specific jokey humor or like kind of a dramedy where it's in relationships. And so it ended up like in the worst of both worlds where, you know, if I'm, if I'm building a light up, I think if I could go from like hard drama to hard comedy, that's a better contrast. (laughs) I know this is going to sound weird, but like it's basically like indie rocker Riverdale with jokes. Like in in so much as like how much people sleeping with each other happens, and also like everybody now seems to like somehow work together in in various capacities. You know, I mean, if it were Riverdale with jokes, it would have. Let's see, I'm just gonna like pull a random detail from the last episode of Riverdale because this is my favorite activity. Um, we did learn in the last episode of the Riverdale that Cheryl Blossom wants to go to Highsmith College. Uh-huh. We've never heard of it before. It is, is that a, like Mount Holyoke or something? Or maybe, but it has a headmistress Patricia, and then in the episode. They also have Price of Salt and Talented Mr. Ripley references, just in case you missed it. It's and this somewhere is just in like, Western Mass. I just can't decide between Smith and Holyoke. Then. Well, I think if like it appears to be within walking distance of Vancouver because of how everything is in the Pacific Northwest and Riverdale. But um, yeah, so that was kind of the end of my... I, I stretched the definition of late night and put basically did like a four hour primetime block. But okay. My, yeah. So my late night ish programming starts at this point in the and evening. So it's 11 or 10. I think it's. So you've done. It's, we're in the final hour. So you've done whatever. 90 minutes of RuPaul. 90 minutes of RuPaul, half an hour of Russian Doll, Broad City and the other two are a full hour combined. So and then Brooklyn Nine-Nine is like an extra half hour. That right. I just so now we're into. at 1130. You didn't watch the news. No, because Forget. part of part of my point with the late night thing was kind of, I don't think pe- most people, or at least certainly most people my age, wa- are really in the mood to watch like a full hour of late night. Yeah. And the way late night is made now, because they, they totally understand that, is they tape them at like 4 p.m. Eastern. And then when they get something that they know is going to blow up, they have released a 90-second clip. Like I, the most recent one that I can think of was Stephen Colbert and Ellen Page. Okay. That like this has to fucking stop moment. And they, you know, the producers were smart and they broke that out and it totally went viral on its own. But that's like how most people on the internet at least consume late night. Okay, so, so you went to 11.30. My 10 o'clock show, no surprise, is true detective so that takes me to 11 uh-huh so now we're both at like 
my late night starts at 11. I'm going to push out, you know, Jake Tapper to be like, tonight on the news. <laughs> uh, so now we're both at 11.30. Yes. So my 11.30 is just like a half-hour YouTube composite of whatever collected late night has decided to oh, deliver that week. Oh, that would be a good idea. So, so basically just yeah. like a bundle. Yeah. So it's maybe like a closer look was really good on Seth Meyers, so you do that, and like Colbert had a really good interview, and Fallon had a really funny bit, or, you know, maybe you just are in the mood to watch a whole episode of either Last Week Tonight or Patriot Act, but like, obviously just reserved a half hour for like late night melange of your choosing. Yes. Because I think that's certainly how I consume late night now. So like, I basically... I basically said Patriot Act and NBA Desktop would be my late night. Ah, some, so, some SpawnCon. <laughs> some SpawnCon, but also, like, that would basically be the Sports Center thing for me. So I would have watched Sports Center at 11, 11.30 at some point in there just to catch up on the night. But I love how Jason just kind of, like, sums up the week in Twitter and offline or online NBA life. I mean, as someone who does not <laughs> does not practice the, like, on the not offline, or I don't pay attention to like the other the part of that. The basketball part, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I find it very useful in terms of the part that I have the most like ready access to and ability to understand is exactly what Jason does a great job right. of breaking down. Okay, so, so let's just to recap Allison, eight o'clock to 9 30, RuPaul. Yes. Then we're going to go with a block of half hour shows of uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Well, sorry, what's the order you had them in? I had. Um, Drag Race, Russian Doll, Broad City, the other two is kind of like a mini, like, actual programming block. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and then my late-night YouTube compilation. Then my final entry, yes. the, like, full transition between, like, actively paying attention and just, like, drifting off to slumber oh. is uh, <laughs> Bon Appetit YouTube clips, baby! Okay. Uh, so I am, as you know, a passionate home cook. Um, I'm one of, like, a few at The Ringer. We have a recipe slack. It's yeah. wonderful. It's my it's my retreat. It's my oasis. It doesn't but, speak very highly of the rest of our slack. <laughs> you know, there's the, there's the part of slack where you actually have to, like, pay attention and offer opinions, and there's the part of slack where you're like, I like this. Yeah. This is good. Yeah. There's the part of slack where an unnamed podcast producer might come in and go, who the fuck is Casey Musgraves? Do we want to have him? <laughs> I think we'll spare him. Just know that a, an employee of TheRinger.com, yeah. one of the foremost his Casey name, Musgraves his name boosters. His name the Schmee. Please at him, everyone. But Bon Appetit is, they have this like really fascinating YouTube presence where basically they've turned like their, not unlike us, like they've turned their editors and writers into like on-camera personalities. Um, the, their test kitchen director, Brad Leone, has a really fun series called It's Alive. Claire Saffitz, who is now like, a, she used to be on staff, but now she literally like just has a freelance thing for the, these videos, has a gourmet make series where she t- tries to recreate like Twizzlers or yeah. whatever snack food. They have just a bunch of test kitchen ones where it's just like a 10 minute video of someone like making a recipe. But it's the perfect like kind of brainless but like really well made, really aesthetically pleasing and like they it's been so successful that they actually are spinning this off into like a proper over yeah. the top like TV-ish thing. I don't fully understand how that's going to work, but like at least once or twice a week when I'm kind of like you know, it's like 11.30 and I'm like kind of tired, but I don't want to watch like a full hour of television right now. I'll just like pull up YouTube.com slash Bon Appetit. which and like watch those. Literally my browser auto, I hit Y and it just auto fills. That's when you know you have a problem. <laughs> or do you get hungry when you do this? I think like at that point, like my, my stomach is kind of turned off for the evening. Okay. If I do it in the middle of the workday, that's that's a problem. Okay. But, uh, th- so we'll put Allison's block of programming uh, for Allison TV up on uh, the watch Twitter so you guys can see that and maybe you can try it try it at home one night try putting it together one of Allison's nights oh my god please yeah, I would be let so us know flattered what you think. we're going to talk to Andrew Godadaro about his night of programming in just a minute today's episode of the watch is brought to you by Bud Light did you know not all alcohol products are required to list their ingredients this was news to me but Bud Light is changing the game. They believe that we deserve to know our beer's ingredients. So they put an ingredients label right on their packaging. Bud Light, brewed with hops, barley, water, and rice. No corn syrup, no preservatives, no artificial flavors. Find out what ingredients are in your beer, Bud Light. 
So now I'm joined by Andrew Godardaro, one of our culture editors and culture writers over at The Ringer, uh, and a, a multiple-time watch guest. And Andrew also participated in this building a must-see TV programming block out of the impossible to to keep on top of television landscape. Andrew, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. So what did, you think, of this? Of this. What did, what did you think of this project? Yeah. I thought, I mean, it's super interesting to think about, especially just coming from, you know, this world we live in now where everything comes out at all, all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yes. You know, it it's like, it's like 600 things a week um, just to try and pare it down and also try and figure out what might flow the best, what might make the most sense. You know, I, you're going to see in mind that, you know, maybe things don't really match up or <laughs> I'm not exactly doing like comedy from NBC Thursdays. Sure. But, yeah. Um, it's not totally maybe like the way we're used to it. Can you even remember actually off like off the top of your head, like when the last time was that you watched a three hour block of programming like that you sat down and were like I, it's yeah it's, i guess it's hbo sundays right h i mean hbo sundays are still pretty much the only thing that's uh that exists um i would say maybe like 2008 when nbc had like steve carell still on the office right right they had parks and rec and they had community yes like the that that stretch was something where I would sit down and just watch it straight. God, and was that, it 2008? <laughs> I think it was. Oh my God. It was maybe the last, maybe the last time that, that I watched TV like that. Okay. I mean, this, that's so fascinating to think about. I mean, that really should like kind of send shivers down the spine of TV <laughs> advertisers, <laughs> honestly. Totally. Because yeah. that's like, it's, it's, it's so far off from, I mean, when I watch shows now, like if I'm watching like, um, a movie on FX, I just like, I'll basically realize that the movie is on, hit record, and then come <laughs> back to it 30 yeah. minutes later so that I can skip commercials in real time. But yeah. yeah, it's so, it's such like a daunting experience now to, the, to imagine yourself like kind of leaving yourself up to the gods of TV instead of having complete control. Yeah, we've just become uh, more adept. TV viewers at this point. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start. It's 8 p.m. It's Andrew TV. Yes. What are we watching? So we're starting off with uh, Drunk History. Okay. It's Comedy Central. It's just like, it's still so good. I think they're they're in season five now. Okay. But, you know, the premise is still the same. It's, it's still comedians getting wasted talking about something that happened, you know, in history and doing an okay job, but... <laughs> while while very famous people, you know, lip lip sync their stories. It's still really funny. It's just an easy watch. Yeah, it's, it's a nice post-dinner watch. Yeah, and you know, it, I'm not like definitely do your Wikipedia after you watch the show. <laughs> like don't go retell these stories, but like at the same time, it, it does teach you a little something. Okay, so 8 p.m. we got drunk history. What's on at 8:30? 8.30 is Russian Doll. Nice. This is the, this so, is the half hour, half hour, hour. Yeah. Me. So Russian Doll made you, me, and Allison's programming block. It's just, I mean, I, I will say I, I came into the show a little, a little salty just because this was the show where pretty much every TV critic who got screeners of it at the end of 2018 basically was like, this is the best show of 2019. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I like was going into it with this like I don't know I was just a, a doubting it a little bit but man it is good a little skeptical so you were skeptical at first but it, it really does yes. pay off yeah uh, yeah I I would say with, within the first two episodes I was like all right I'm I'm in I mean it's just like it's just a really well written show I wonder how um, that would have played I wonder how Russian Doll would play week to week because it's like those those thirty minute yeah. dramas, like which is, I think essentially, even though there's lots of funny stuff in Russian sure. Doll, it's essentially still a drama. It would be weird to get like a thirty minute show and then be like, now I have to wait six days or whatever to get. You know, I have to wait a week yeah. to get like my answer to the question. I guess. I mean, it's like I guess it's the same thing with like Lost. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like there you have so much time to really fold over on this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, the 
the plot is super tight and the characters are really good. Like Maxine, even though I you spend probably like all of five minutes yeah. with her throughout the whole show, it's just like a great character. Sweet birthday baby. <laughs> Sweet birthday baby. <laughs> uh it's yeah, it's just so good. Yeah. Um great 30 minute okay. 30 minute show. It's 9 p.m. So 9 p.m. I'm I'm going true detective. Nice. Um, that was on my list too. Yeah. You know, super strong. This season has sort of been a return to form for for Nick Piz. I all the way in on on the story. You know, Mahershala and Stephen Dorff are both just going hard in the paint. Yes. Uh, same with Scoot. I mean, it's Scoot incredible. Scoot really went for it last night. The oh, Scoot man. Emmy reel. Yeah. <laughs> I heard Jason Concepcion yelling yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! But it's it, yeah, great show. So um, it's interesting. You and I are obviously pretty attuned to this. A, because a, I'm obsessed with True Detective and B, yeah. because we work on a website that covers so much pop culture. True Detective is just like weirdly run the gauntlet in this season of going up against like huge, huge draws away yeah. from it in terms of yeah. programming. So they did, they came out, put two episodes up immediately. Mm-hmm. Cool, I understand, trying to get people into the story, uh, you know, after a down season two. Got it. Then they went up against um, the Super Bowl, yeah. <laughs> they went up against the Grammys, and now their finale will go up against the Oscars. <laughs> yeah. So real bold move. Kind of an amazing. Like, I mean, I saw Casey Boys was at TCA's last week, and he was saying, you know, a, a fair amount of people are watching this. This is creatively and commercially done exactly what we wanted it to do. So I'm kind of impressed. It does seem like a show people are finding on demand after uh, after its airtime. Yeah, it does. I mean, we're so far beyond this idea of like monoculture. Um, you know, Game of Thrones is the last bit of it. But this show does kind of have a feeling where you go to a bar, you can find like 50% of the bar will have seen it. And yeah. you can kind of talk about it, which yeah. is pretty rare these days. Uh, okay, so it's 10 o'clock? Yeah, 10 o'clock is where this uh, takes a real left because 10 o'clock is the mass Singer. <laughs> and we're just going so out of the pink room and into the mask <laughs> yeah. singer. Although, if you walked into a pink room, you would it wouldn't be crazy to see a masked singer in there. Yeah, there's just Antonio Brown taking <laughs> off a, a helmet. I mean, this show is just so weird. It's just so weird. Uh, like, all right, for anybody, maybe does... the, we haven't talked about this on the watch. Can you <laughs> okay. explain the mask singer to people briefly? So. The the gist is there, I believe, it started out with 10 people. They are, you know, like from C-list celebrities to Z-list celebrities. And they are all in the most elaborate costumes you've ever seen. And they're just singing pop songs while Robin Thicke, Nicole Scherzinger from the Pussycat Dolls, Jenny McCarthy, and Ken Jong try to guess who they are. <laughs> That's the show. <laughs> and then once an episode, someone has to take off their mask and be like, the first the first one was Antonio Brown in the middle of him basically staging a mutiny against the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and, it, you know, like the, the judges are, like, you know, Jenny McCarthy's out here guessing that Barack Obama is on the show or that Kendall Jenner is doing the show, and it's just like high comedy in that regard. And then it's just one of the trippiest viewing experiences out right now where you really do feel like you've you've been laced. Yeah, it's like, a, it, so it's basically like if they had this on Black Mirror, you'd be like, wow, <laughs> yeah. this the future looks pretty weird, but instead this is our reality. Yeah, it's just bizarre. It's a great watch. Um, you know, if you want to make fun of it or if you want to just like actually get into it and actually dive into the to the theorizing as to who is behind these masks. It, yeah. It offers everything, yeah. Okay. So is that an hour long or a half hour? It's an hour long. But they so really that's... stretch it out. That's great. <laughs> an hour <laughs> they need it masked. all, believe me. <laughs> okay, so you've gone from true detective to mask singer. Now it's eleven o'clock. Yeah. Uh what are you what are you watching for your late night stuff? So I might be cheating here a little bit because it it premieres next week, but I'm giving half an hour to Jesus and Mero. That's perfect. To yeah, kick that's a perfect off. call. Um, they, their show is so good. They, I feel like them above anyone else. They're sort of speaking the language of comedy right now. Um, is their voice? You know, just comedy is so based on internet speak these yeah. days, and they are that, and they kind of are the leaders in that genre. 
Um, and they're just so damn funny. Yeah, it's basically like pop culture pardon the interruption spoken yes. in the voice of like hip hop exactly. and online. So it's just it's just like kind of the perfect show for right now. I really hope that the Showtime version of it like catches on in a big way. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know they're smartly they don't seem to be deviating from what they're good at. So that I'm gonna give a half hour to that. With my late night, I kind of am just picking out segments of late night shows. Yeah, that that's I, what I Allison like. said. She'd like to bundle together the yeah. viral clips from that night's late night. So we've got we've got eleven to eleven thirty is Jesus and Mero, uh time. Eleven thirty, I'm gonna give a half hour to the Graham Norton show. Awesome. Great shout. Oh, great that, call. That couch is just the best couch in late night. Yeah. They, I don't know who's responsible for it, but the the people that they put together is just astounding. Like they have, they have Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper paired up with the woman who's playing Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, the, this doesn't make sense. And then they know it doesn't make sense. And they kind of just subject everyone to each other and sort of just let it happen. So if you guys have not seen the Graham Norton show, you can find it really easily on YouTube. And my favorite uh, segment, at least recently from this, has been, I think it was like in 2016 when uh, Nice Guys came out. And it was Mm -hmm. Ryan Gosling, Russell Crowe together. Then Jodie Foster was also there. (laughs) And this comedian named Greg Davies, who I think used to be like like a school teacher in England. And then uh, like basically did like a TV show based on his experiences as a school teacher. And yeah. he tells this absolutely bonkers story about being hung over at school. I don't want to ruin it, but it's, it's like one of those things that like, you know, the celebrities just like us, like you can yeah. tell so much right. from Joe. First of all, Jodie Foster seems like a great hang. She cracks up at the story, <laughs> but Gosling is crying like he he yeah. it's like the funniest story Gosling has ever heard and you got it you gotta watch this clip yeah the show produces so many moments like that where it's like it actually seems like they're having a good time and yeah. it actually seems like they're you know coming out of their shells a little bit so that's you know that's uh, that's gonna be my celebrity segment of late night TV at midnight here's so I have 30 minutes left right so at midnight, I'm giving 15 minutes to John Mulaney and Pete Davidson to just review movies. Wow, you're genius. Because <laughs> of their mule thing? Yes. Yes. I just need, I just need that. Yes. Like, give me more of that. Like, talk about, you can do movies that came out this week, or you can do Oscar movies, like, whatever. Just talk about, do jokes about movies. That's perfect. That's all I want. Okay. And then the last 15 minutes... I'm just going to give to Julio Torres from SNL. <laughs> okay. So just to do what? To do anything? He can, if he wants to do stand-up one time, he can do stand-up. But yeah, just here's a here's a production budget. Like, go make some weird some weird skits. Amazing. And it's just a 15-minute a short story. <laughs> um, Andrew, I think you should be in charge of late-night television. Sign me up. Yeah, I think I love that list. So Andrew and Allison and my programming blocks are going to be up. We can send them out via the Watch Twitter feed. I'll also post that Graham Norton, Ryan Gosling clip because you got to see it. And the John Mulaney, Pete Davidson reviewing the mule thing because you got to see that. So that's a really, really, really good programming block. I don't know why we're not, why aren't we in charge of TV, man? I don't know. Like, please. Okay, we'll bring America back to their couches. (laughs) Andrew, thank you for joining us. Uh, Talk to you soon, Chris. Okay, thank you to Allison Herman and Andrew Grotodaro. You can see all three of our programming blocks. We'll put that up on the Watch Twitter feed. That's at the Watch Pod on Twitter. We're going to get into my interview with Leslie Hedlund from Russian Doll. But first, a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by To Kill a Mockingbird. Academy Award-winning screenwriter and playwright Aaron Sorkin was recently on the Bill Simmons podcast discussing his long career and great movies and shows, including The West Wing, Newsroom, and The Social Network. He has a new play on Broadway, though. It's an adaptation of Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize-winning To Kill a Mockingbird, which was recently voted America's best-loved novel of all time. To Kill a Mockingbird has become one of the most popular and toughest tickets to get on Broadway. It has set the record as the highest-grossing American play in Broadway history. It has also been selected as a critic's pick by the New York Times and has been called one of the greatest plays in history by NPR. 
It stars two-time Emmy Award winner Jeff Daniels, who you may know from The Newsroom and Godless, and he is live on stage as Atticus Finch. Variety calls it one of the greatest stage successes of this or any Broadway season. It has not played to a single empty seat. And while To Kill a Mockingbird is sold out for the next several months, tickets would make a fantastic Valentine's Day gift when purchased for available performances this coming summer or fall. Tickets are available directly through telecharge.com or the show's website, tokillamockingbirdbroadway.com. So, Leslie, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, yeah, I, I have so many questions about like the both the making of this show, and then one of the greatest things about Russian Doll is the amazingly passionate conversation that has come out of the show, and like I feel like everybody I talk to has a completely different read on it. What's been the experience of people coming up to you, or people calling you, or people writing you and saying? Great show. Here's my take on it. And and I, it seems like there's so many wildly <laughs> divergent readings of it. Yeah. No, it, it, first of all, I want to say this is like a dream, dream, dream come true for me. Like as somebody that loves, you know, I mean, name a show like Lost, Twin Peaks, yeah. The Twilight Zone, Black Mirror. Like this is like my dream. When we initially pitched it to Netflix, I remember... Natasha described it as an existential adventure show, and and I would describe it to uh, as a um, an emotional puzzle box show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's like it has all the makings of those shows that I absolutely adore and and watch. You know, would watch religiously, but like at the same time, it's it's kind of more concerned with the EQ than the IQ, mm-hmm. and you have to tap in. You know, the audience has to tap into their emotional intelligence in order to solve the problem of the show as opposed to you know guessing the correct theory if that makes sense yeah it's really fun to have people respond to the show in in the way you're describing because inevitably what they have to do is talk about themselves and open up emotionally to talk about it so it's like it's it's just twofold of just the most exciting feedback of like you know i enjoyed it and and congratulations but then there's also this like Here's what I thought. Like, here was my emotional Rorschach test. <laughs> like, this was my result <laughs> yeah, <'cause laughs> in your emotional Rorschach test. It's different than True Detective, right? Because, like, in True Detective, you're using yes. your kind of background, whatever background you have in watching crime shows, and you're like, okay, they wouldn't have shown this person if he didn't have something to do with that. But then I'm still trying to figure out, like, why the Yellow King drawing is in this person's room. But then with Russian Doll, it's almost this kind of um, people are putting their own stuff onto it, right? Like I watched it and I was just like, well, this sh- this is just about, this is about drugs. Like this is obviously about what it's like to kind of get out of or be in the throes of addiction. And I was deeply fascinated by that part. But then, you know, Jason Zinneman wrote about the Tompkins uh, Square Park riots on Twitter. That That, that is obviously kind of, kind of become a viral theory about the show. For you, how much of you is in there, right? Because like if so many different people put their stuff on it. Is there any sense of possession that you have over the show? Oh, no, not at all. Like nothing makes me happier than, than like reading Jason's thread and being like, Oh my God. (laughs) You know, it's like, because all of those things we talked about, you you know, like we, we did discuss all of the things that he, uh, like even before I came onto the show, it would, it took place in Tompkins Square Park and Natasha had talked at length about the history of the area and what parts of the area she wanted to shoot in and where she believed certain characters would live and, you know, be in and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's like, when I hear something like that, I'm like, yes, you're right. And also you're wrong. You know, <laughs> right. it's like, it's also not just about that you know like it's also about trauma it's also to me a ghost story you know it's about being haunted it's kind of an amalgamation of you know three of my favorite movies which is the shining it's a wonderful life and back to the future like if you just put all of them in one movie in one four-hour piece of material it would be russian doll you know like so to me that's what it's about you know like or that's what i think or hold on to while you know, I'm collaborating with, you know, the other creators and the cast and the designers, but does that mean that Jason's wrong? Like, no, like, like I think that everything he said, I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. You know, like, this is this is all, this is all really rad, you know, like, but 
I think metaphor is a tricky thing, you know, in literary terms. Like, I don't think that, you know, one thing means one thing. You know, you look at something like War of the Worlds, you know, like, and you can read that and at the time that it happened and you can read what H.G. Wells said at the beginning, uh, his quote about uh, um, Tasmania and colonization and all of those things. And you can read one reading into it and then you know, Steven Spielberg can make it a gajillion years later and it can mean something very different. You know, like it, it doesn't necessarily carry a one-to-one uh, in the same way that I think we'd like it to sometimes. And and I'm also like a big fan of letting the audience, you know, decide those things for themselves. Like I answered the questions for myself when I was working on it with the writers and the directors and thinking to myself, like, this makes sense for me for this reason. But I can tell you, like Jamie Babbitt, you know, our amazing director, uh, uh, Natasha, who directed the finale, like, I'm sure they had different reasons. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like, in their heads for why something was happening, you know, like, um, the writers, you know, Alison Silverman, Chiraco Dunlap, Jocelyn Bio, you know, like, these are people that I think probably knew what they were writing when they were writing it, and at the same time would have a different answer than I have for why somebody says something or behaves in a particular way on the show. So I think that's kind of the fun of it. Like I said, it's an emotional puzzle box show. It's like you have to access something inside yourself to solve it. And what that is for some people will be the Tompkins Square riots. Yeah. <laughs> and for other people, it will be uh, something else altogether. And there's one thing I think everybody could agree on is that the show couldn't be set anywhere else but New York. You know what I mean? Like, yes. I mean, it could yes. be, you could yeah. try, but, you know, one of the things that I, it was really fascinating is, you know, th- this show came out, I guess, two, a week, two week ago, two weeks ago now at this point? I can't remember. Is it, are we, are we, no, I, I think it's only a week. Right. I know. I, it feels like it's been out for a month, I but know. <laughs> yeah, I think it is only a week. Yeah. And then I also saw High Flying Bird this week, which is also on Netflix and is coming out, came out on Friday. This, this interview will go about up on Monday. And I thought that they actually went together very well because they both were basically the first truly like post 2008 New York things that I had seen that I really connected with that kind of, but they kind of like got at what happened in that city after the crash and after kind of, you know, you have this changing of the guard in New York City and you still have these little pockets that are being ardently defended, but then there's it. it, And I thought that that was so fascinating that you guys were able to get at that. And I know that it's, it's notoriously difficult to make stuff in New York now. Can you tell me a little bit about the character that New York played, but also, you know, maybe some of the challenges of making it there? Well, I think that, like I said, you know, this was Natasha's, you know, mandate and dream from the beginning. She's lived in the East Village for a very long time. And, and, um, there, like would you know, even when we were like looking for locations, it was just incredible. Like she would just know where some, she'd be like, we should take a look at that, uh, at the deli that's on this, street with this thing, you know, like, or, or there's a, there's a synagogue that's over here. Like one of the inspirations for Maxine's apartment was the Talmud building, which is an old yeshiva, um, that is now an apartment building that's on the east side of the park. We ended up shooting on the west side of the park, but yeah, it just, it always felt like that was the snow globe or the Bedford Falls that we were going to be in, you know, like that was our, (laughs) that was our, um, Hill Valley, you know, like (laughs) like that was, that was where, you know, like any of these stories that are about what the show is about, like usually you have a locale that's kind of fixed, you know, whether it's fixed, um, emotionally or physically like the shining, you know, like where you just kind of, you kind of can't escape because of, X, Y, and Z, but also coming from being a playwright, that's usually the case anyway, is that you're usually stuck in, in one location. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know, and you have to kind of figure out, even if it's more than one location, it's still one location, which is the stage. So you have to kind of figure out what story is going to play out on, on that stage. So it was always a huge role was always, uh, it was always going to be there. Um, it was helped immensely by, Natasha's knowledge of both living there and the history of it. The challenges of shooting in New York are, I mean, listen, I've shot almost everything I've done in New York, meaning, you know, I've done some episodic elsewhere, but like both my films were shot here. I do a lot of my plays here. It's it's a place that I've had the pleasure of working in and have kind of figured out the ins and outs of what it's like to shoot here. Yeah. Um, what's fun about shooting in New York 
and also kind of challenging is that New York doesn't care that you're filming. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, like no one in New York cares that you're filming, um, except when you're making too much noise and they want you to go away. You know what I mean? Like, but insofar as like, if you're trying to get a, a particular shot or, you know, you want to go on the subway or you want to do this, that, and you other thing, like, and you need to have your permits or you've got to like, like New York is not that interested in helping you out necessarily. Right. <laughs> but that's kind of what's fun about doing it is that it does feel like you're getting away with something, even if it's all on the up and up, you still sort of feel like, I can't believe we're shooting, you know, I can't believe we're shooting in Tompkins. Like I remember, you know, one of the first days that we went out there, just being like, I can't believe we're here. Like, we, I just can't believe someone let us be here. <laughs> yeah. How long have you lived in New York? I've been here. Um, I came here to go to Tish in 1999. And then I moved to L.A. for about five-ish years in the 2000s. Uh-huh. But I've been here for the most part for about 20. Oh, God. Oh, that's 20 years. Yeah. So <laughs> no, for, that, that happens for, now. I was like. Jesus, that's 20 years, that's 20 years in New York, um, with like a nice little pit stop in LA when I was first starting out. Yeah, when I, because in the, right after, like in 2001, I started working at Kim's on St. Mark's. So I was like very fascinated by how uh, Natasha's character has these kind of, um, like almost home bases, like the bar bodega apartment runs that she does, where it's like, you just always, even though New York is this sort of never ending maze you wind up creating like these safe havens within a six to ten to twenty block radius that you're just kind of like yeah. doing this loop of i thought yeah. that's it almost like lent itself really well to all the chronological loops that were happening because in her daily life she would just be doing these five to seven same things anyway so it kind of like completely it was like a perfect setting for this kind of like okay now we're stuck again and we're starting over because it always kind of does I'm feel so- like that I love that you say that because that's exactly how we felt shooting it. You know what I mean? Like we were just like, you know, this is exactly what, this is exactly what it's like to be a New Yorker. You have like your snow globe that you live in and like, yes, you venture out every once in a while, but you figure out your corner of it and then you hang out there. Yeah. And, and it's funny, it, it does lend itself actually to that narrative uh, device of a time loop or a, a looping day or you know, for me, I mean, we, we called them loops when we were making the show because, you know, it's not a day. It's not a, it's not a, it's a reset that's, that's triggered by her death. So it's a little bit more of a, a video game sure. than, uh, you know, um, she's repeating the same day. Like, I also didn't think of like the other people that lived in her world as being like, to use that, you know, a video game term um, NPCs, non-playable characters, like they are their own people. And like, whenever it restarts, like they're going to do what they want. That's not necessarily based solely on what Nadia's behavior is, which I think is nicely summed up in the pilot when she asks force if they know each other and he tells her to fuck off. Like, <laughs> it's like, like, I feel like that's like where we were telling the audience, like, yeah, these people don't care whether she's looping or not. Like, yeah, that's the thing you that know? you can't explain to anybody who hasn't lived there is that it's yeah. this city with all these people. And when you bump into somebody like on a subway car or if you like decide randomly to go down 4th Street instead of 5th Street and then you bump into somebody or you see something that yeah. you you're like, wait a second, like of all the decisions I made in this day, how did I wind up outside of this store on 5th Street? And then I saw this moment, or when you right? run into someone yeah, randomly yeah. that you haven't seen in a long time. And you're like, you're like, Oh my God, all of the stuff that I had to do to get to this moment where I'm standing on 14th and sixth Avenue and I'm running into like my friend from high school. Like, this is crazy. You know, like it's like New York just has, you're right. It's like, if you haven't lived here, then you don't know that. But I do think the show does a good job of, um, because it's, you know, got all of those dashes of magical realism. I think it does a good job of kind of giving you a sense of what it might feel like to live here in that in that way, I guess. Absolutely. Now, I read an interview that you did in Gothamist, I, th- I believe, and you were talking a little bit about the assembly of the, the the writing style that you guys employed here, that you were thinking of this season almost the way people might uh, assemble an album, like a, 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 a musical album. Oh, yeah. I imagine that it must be, 
What was it like to basically have that feeling and want to have that kind of vibe, you know, for a show while also obviously having a lot of rules and chronologies and a lot of like, I'm sure geography of like, okay, well, if this person's here and this thing, then they have to be here and this thing. Oh, yeah. And like cork boards, oh, yeah. you know, you were probably going full, full Carrie Matheson at certain points. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. How do you balance the <laughs> both sides of your brain there? What's that meme from It's Always Sunny? Oh, it's when he's like, he's trying to figure out like there's like a mail room and it's like this guy is getting mail, but he doesn't actually work there. And so he just decides to stop delivering mail and he's like chain smoking. It's really funny. Yeah, that's good. Like, that's how I felt. uh, And I think everyone that worked on the show probably felt like that every day. Like every day we were just like, wait a minute. So, okay. It's not, you know, like it's everything from, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like we had... God, we had like um, a whole wall as we were moving into prep. We had a whole wall that was a chart that was each loop. Like um, if you can imagine like a horizontal, vertical, you know, like it's like, you know, vertically it was like, this is what loop Nadia is on. You know, like this is loop A, this is loop B, this is loop C. You know, A, she gets hit by a car. B, she falls into the uh, East River. See, she falls down one of those hatches. And then horizontally, it would be the time of day. So it would be like Sunday night into Monday morning. I think she might make it to Monday night. I think that might be the furthest she gets. Yeah. So it was just this big table of like, that's what's happening there. So each loop had a name. So in the script, it would say which loop we were on in addition to what like, time of day it was or like you know like it's just like it's just insane you know like and then you started going into like our production designer michael bricker created uh an image like a i don't know what you would call it but like a diagram that was essentially kind of a kind of a russian doll where the party was the middle and then as the further away you got from the party like the colors that we would be using and utilizing would change and so that's so you would so the party was the center of it and then as you moved out to different locations they kind of meant different things and the further away you got from the nucleus like the more i guess like darker and more natural things became holy shit um i'd have to look i'd have to look at it again but it's like so we had that you know i remember having a what was called a loop meeting (laughs) (laughs) during prep we had a loop meeting with natasha and all of the designers and all the department heads and we went through what happened in each like kind of like, okay, this is when pets disappear. This is when, uh, you know, um, things start rotting. This is when like this stuff happens. This is when people start disappearing. Like, you know, like it was, it was all planned, you know, like it was all, you know, a very intense experiment of with all these limitations, can you still make great emotional art? Yeah. And, the answer was yes, which I'm shocked by, <laughs> um, to be honest, like, you know, there, I was, you know, definitely a part of me, you know, while we were making this where I was like, this is just crazy, you know, like, this is just insane. <laughs> right. like, I, I really hope it works. You know, I, I understand it. I'm not sure anyone else is going to, you know, like my, my collaborators understand, like Natasha's totally on board, like Netflix is on board, you know, like, but I just was like, I have no idea whether or not an audience is going to like, notice and or care about all of this all of this thought and planning that we put into this and so that response is overwhelming to see people noticing all of these certain things like you know there was like I remember one day when Allison Silverman one of the very talented writers on the show pitched that like there the three guys in the deli that that asked her for directions yeah. like should show up in other places and like be other characters and so like we hired three guys i think that were all on the same UCB team to play these trio of guys <laughs> who keep popping up right <laughs> yeah it's just like i mean and just thinking like that is such a brilliant idea like i don't know how we're going to do that and then we figured out how to do it and and 
And then, and now there's like a whole ride on Reddit about it. It's awesome. It's so cool. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you, we try to ask people pretty regularly when they come on the watch, what are they watching right now? So I would just be curious to know, like now you're out of the the Russian doll kind of um, production cycle. What are you doing to like kind of decompress? Like, what are you doing to distract yourself from Reddit? Like what's, what are you watching right now? Well, I usually decompress when something comes out, I usually like to rewatch something I really love um, because it is really stressful, even even when the reception is really great. So I'm rewatching Venture Brothers right now, which nice. I do probably like once a year. I also find um, YouTube uh, film critic essays to be really soothing, um, like Mikey Newman, Movies with Mikey, uh, Folding Ideas, Lindsay Ellis. So I watch their stuff. I kind of rewatch them if I've seen them already. Um, I like to rewatch stuff when I'm stressed out. <laughs> yeah, like because you can turn like the one part of your brain off that sort of like yes. needs to know what and happens the, next. Yeah, yeah, and I get to like notice new things that maybe I didn't notice before, and like you know, especially with something like Venture Brothers, like you know, there are jokes still that make me laugh out loud that I've forgotten happen. You know, like that's a show that continually reinvented itself so often that um, you know it's just super fun and. Uh, that's what I'm doing right now. I feel like I should tell you something cooler. No, like, like not at all. Something cool, cool I don't know if there's out, such a thing as like cool TV anymore because there's 400 shows <laughs> on. So it's kind of like... Yeah, it, there's a lot of content. There's yeah. a lot of content. It's almost like if you go to um, a high school say, with 1,500 people and then you're like, oh, well, I just didn't know everybody, you know? like <laughs> Yeah, I just didn't know everybody there. How could I know everybody there? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I also think that there's just something very soothing about the stuff that you love and re-watching it and... Um, 100%. I remember when we were shooting a Russian doll saying like, um, you know, uh, Natasha is so detailed or detail oriented. And I would always joke like, oh, gosh, you know, Natasha, only the people that watch it like two or three times are going to notice that, you know, like, and she's like, yeah, but put it in there anyway. Like, well, blah, blah. now I'm like, thank God we did that. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I think that that's actually, I wonder if that's almost like a new responsibility for people running shows now, because basically yes. it's the, it's the first pass people do on shows seems to be, I'm trying to crack it. I'm trying to figure out like what their drop, like what Easter eggs are there and what threads they're, they're leading me down. And now yeah, and then they yeah, go back yeah. and kind of get the emotional beats. It's it's kind of fascinating to watch how people kind of get into stuff now. Yeah, yeah. No, it's so true. It's so true. And it and it does make me feel like, you know, I always thought that about my films for sure. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, like of like uh, you know the films I love are the ones that you can watch over and over again. The three that I mentioned are all movies you can watch just are just as enjoyable the second or third or fourth time around as they are the first time you watch it. So you know. I feel that stuff that way about the stuff that I love and and I'm glad that I was a part of something that that people feel that way about now. Yeah, I think people will be rewatching Russian Doll uh, for a variety of reasons for a long time. Leslie, thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> thank uh, you. Hope to have you on again and take care. Yeah, th- thank you so much and I'll uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> 